All right, this morning, well, this morning, this, this hour and the next hour is all going to be dedicated to one verse. This was the goal last week, and things didn't go exactly as planned. So for those listening online, this will be somewhat repetitive from what we did last week. However, I think the seriousness and importance of this topic, that it is perfectly acceptable and okay to repeat this. I think it's actually needed. And um, of course, the people who show up in the next hour, they'll, we'll, they'll, we'll make sure that they are caught up as well. So there'll be a little bit of repetition this morning, but I think it's necessary and I think it's important. I don't always like to do that, but in this particular case, um, because we're dealing with something that probably most, I know most of the people who've listened to uh, what we did last Sunday online, they had never heard anything like it. Uh, many of the people who were here were like, they had not heard this, so this will be very important, and hopefully we'll get everyone on the same page. And if you have any questions, you can ask uh, between this hour and the next hour, and then um, I can address those in the next hour. All right, so everybody ready? All right, here we go. This is a very, 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 very important concept. I believe uh, one of the major issues that sometimes arises within Christianity is that there is a Christianity that is sold versus a Christianity that is experienced. The church at large has a way of, of saying, hey, you become a Christian, and they seem to make lots of promises that this is the way it's going to be. Someone becomes a Christian six months, a year, four years, five years, ten years as being a Christian, you start going, wait a minute. This is not working the way they told me it was going to work. And this begins to lead to discouragement, depression, disillusionment. It may even lead to uh, questioning one's faith because they're like, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. And this leads to a phenomenon that is called deconstruction that is all over TikTok right now, where people are, you know, deconstructing their faith. Now, sometimes it's just questioning their faith. Sometimes it's a complete renunciation of their faith. But, but, and a lot of times when that happens, Christians immediately will respond, well, they weren't believers in the first place, and we just kind of disregard them. I think sometimes we need to listen to what they're saying, to find out what what led to their crisis of faith. And not in every single case, but in many cases, what leads to their crisis of faith is like, wait a minute, this is the Christianity that was promised. This is the Christianity I experienced. So someone lied to me or it doesn't work. When we hear that, we want to find out, well, wait a minute, were you actually sold something that wasn't true? Does that make sense? Okay, this is a very, very important concept. And I'll just give you one example, and I know this is even controversial, but that's okay. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Everyone knows this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're all taught this. Anytime I cover this verse, it leads to all kinds of (laughs) controversy, but that's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Anyone who's been a Christian for five seconds knows this verse. Probably, usually it's a a verse you memorize very early on in your Christian life. It's usually one that you're given in your first discipleship to memorize. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's typically preached and taught Or if it isn't preached and taught this way, it's assumed to be this way, that that is referencing a reality that is true practically, and it it ignores a positional reality, but it speaks of this as a practical reality. Well, as soon as you say that, there's there's a question that any good Bible student should have, right? Wait a minute, if I'm a new creature, old is gone and everything is new, does that mean that I still have a sinful nature? Well, if I still have a sinful nature, if I still have the flesh, then have all things become new? No, right? And if all things have become new, what should that possibly infer? That we can be what? Sinless, which we know can't happen. All right, here comes more people. That's good, all right? So um, th- that's a the immediate. Now, I know when you say that, people immediately get nervous and say, well, but, 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 but that's what the verse says. 
I understand that's what the verse says, but if we look at the context, the chapter makes a little bit more sense. In fact, if you just go back to the previous verse, which no one ever quotes with verse 17, look at verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. This is making a reference, if you go through the context here, that when you, when someone becomes a Christian, someone becomes a Christian, right? Let's say Lydia becomes a Christian. I mean, I'm not saying she's not, but just say for, for illustration's sake, she becomes a Christian. How are we to view Lydia? As a new creature in Christ, the old is gone and everything is new. Because in her position, what is the truth of her position? Perfectly righteous because of imputed righteousness, right? Her sins are completely wiped away. And Christ's active and passive obedience is imputed to her account. So Lydia and her position is perfectly righteous, perfectly obedient, and without sin. Now, anyone who knows Lydia will know those things are not true practically, right? You're her parents, right? All right? They're not true practically, yes? But they're true positionally. That's how we are to view her, though, as a new creature. In reality, in her practice, she still has the flesh. She still has a depraved nature. So this verse is constantly told to people, you're a new creature. Old is gone. Everything is new. And then you become a Christian. And about six weeks later, you're like, man, there's some things that's still not new here. And you start questioning You could start questioning your salvation, or you may start questioning the Bible, which leads to some major issues. So you have to have a different way of approaching it. Anytime I I mention that, everyone like loses their mind on me, but I'm like, just if you, and we've went through the entire chapter and I've demonstrated how this can be clearly interpreted this way. And it's the only thing that makes any sense. All right. Does, Does everybody understand that? So there are times that a verse seems to say something and we have to at least go, wait a minute. That doesn't match reality. Have we sold the verse in a way that does not actually equate to what is actually being taught? Does that make sense? I really want to set this up because the verse we're looking at is another one of these verses that's very, very controversial. So the verse we're looking at for the next, for this hour and all of next hour, and hopefully we can finish this today, is what verse? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. All right, let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This is another verse that you typically memorize as a new believer. You memorize 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and you end up memorizing 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I memorized it when I was a young Christian, all right? Here we go. Everybody ready? There hath no temptation... Taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may, ye may be able to what? Bear it. All right. Very famous verse, yes? It's been misused and abused 5,000 different ways. And we are going to have to look at this today. And I believe that the way it's typically been handled is incorrect. And if you interpret it in light of the context, you come up with a completely different understanding. So we're going to walk, we're going to work through this. All right. Thinking caps on. This is going to be a lot of work this morning. So we've got a lot to do. All right. If we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, what does it appear to be saying on the surface? Just on the surface, what does it appear to be saying? Well, let's start with the first part, that any temptation you experience is common. That's obvious. No, no, nobody has a problem with that, right? Whatever temptation you've ever experienced, it's common to what people have experienced. I can go from Genesis to the book of Revelation and see people experiencing many of the exact same temptations I have. If it's not specifically the same, it's of the same kind or type. Does that make sense? So there's no problem with that. Nobody has an issue with that. That's not even controversial. Next part. All right. Well, the next part is God is faithful. 
Nobody has a problem with that, right? Okay, God is faithful. He's truthful. He's trustworthy. Nobody has an issue. I hope no one has an issue with that, right? Now, this is where it starts getting problematic, right? And this raises lots of questions. The next part is, God is faithful to do what? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Now, wait a minute. Now, some some will try to reduce this to just saying, well, okay, God will not give you a trial beyond your ability to handle it. But remember, that doesn't really necessarily fix everything because every trial is what? A temptation. Does everybody understand that? It doesn't matter how insignificant the trial is, right? You, you go home and someone in your family says something you don't like or does something you don't like, that's a, that may seem like an insignificant trial, but at that very moment, you're tempted to do what? Respond in an unbiblical way, right? So every trial is still a temptation. So just saying that this is a trial doesn't really fix the problem, okay? So any temptation you get. Now, the first, the first problem is a philosophical problem, right? Well, wait a minute. So that means God controls every temptation I encounter, some people don't like that concept, right? Because your, your initial question would be what? Well, if God controls which temptations that come into my life, why, would he just, why wouldn't he just stop all temptations from coming into my life and then I could be sinless? But he doesn't do that, right? And there's times in the Bible, it's really weird how sometimes he operates and sometimes he doesn't. When, when Abram lied about Sarai, Sarah, right? He lied about her. God steps in to protect anything from happening to her, right? But when Abram is going to have relations with Hagar, he doesn't step in. Now, this, raises, this is the sovereignty of God. It raises lots of questions. It makes Christians uncomfortable. But we just have to acknowledge the reality here. It seems to show who's in charge of the temptations I experience. God. Now, it says God is not going to give me any temptation that I can't handle. Well, that sounds good. All right. Amen. It, are you happy with that? Is, that? is that good news? It is and it isn't. Because the, you got to think this through logically, right? Thinking caps on. Does God know? Does God know uh, what's going to happen with every temptation you encounter? So if he, if he sees Lydia and he gives her a temptation and he knows she's going to fall, it becomes irrelevant whether she's able to resist it or not resist it because he already knows she's not going to resist it. So then why give her the temptation that he knows she's not going to resist? That's a, that's a fundamental question and we shouldn't be afraid of that. Remember here, I love to ask the questions that nobody wants to ever ask. Don't be afraid of asking that question. That's perfectly okay. That doesn't make any sense to me. Hey, if you know I'm going to fall, don't give me the temptation because that would seem to imply that if he knows I'm going to fall, then I'm going to fall, so therefore I don't have the ability not to fall because what he knows precedes my action. All right, so, oh, that makes me a little uncomfortable. Okay, but here's the next question. If God only gives us the temptations that we are able supposedly, now we read this as able to resist, right? That's how we understand this. If that is true, then that would imply what is a possibility? That I can be sinless. That's a problem. Now, you may not think it's a problem because maybe you've figured it out, but I can probably guarantee you that everyone in this room, everyone listening online, and everyone that shows up in the next hour, they sin on a pretty regular and consistent basis. Yes? All right. That's uh, something, something's not working here, right? What's the next thing that's said in the verse? He'll provide you a way to escape that you may be able to bear bear it. So wait a minute. So he's going to keep any temptation that I can't handle. He's going to give me a way to escape so that I can bear it or the word it can be translated endure it. All right, well, that sounds like a perfect solution. So this seems to imply that what should occur? That after 2,000 years of church history, we should have a lot of sinless people. But out of 2,000 years of church history, I can't find any sinless person except for... And that's not us. That's Christ. Now, you see, it seems to infer something 
that we don't quite experience, which leads a lot of... I know when I was a teenager and after I became a, a Christian... I couldn't figure out how this supposedly works, right? Because it, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I continue to sin. And I know this may come as a surprise, I still do. I know, I know you're like, whoa, man, it's so bad that we have a sinful pastor. But I have a lot of sinful people in the congregation, right? So, right, it, we're, 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 we have something in common. We, we, don't, we may not agree on anything else, but we can agree on this, that we're all sinners, well, amen. Can we all agree on that? Now, I don't, I'm not excusing anybody's sin. Please don't think I'm do, saying that. I'm saying that we've got to figure out a verse seems to imply one thing that we know we don't experience. So maybe our, our understanding of the verse is somewhat what? Wrong or flawed. Okay. So let's see what we can do to work on it. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody ready? I want you to write down, I want to take, you a, take a piece of paper, draw a line right down the middle. I know this is going to look crazy when I'm done with this, but that's okay. On one side, I want you to write down three words. Able, escape, bear it, or endure it. And I get all three of those words from where? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Everybody see it? Able. Okay, well, wait a minute. What ability do I have or don't have? This seems to say I have an ability to resist any temptation I experience. Okay, able to do what? Resist it? Escape it? What, is, what ability is that referring to? Escape? Escape in what way? What am I escaping? Endure it? What am I enduring? Or bear it? What am I bearing? What am I enduring? Right, everybody got that? On the other side of the page, I want you to write down the following words. I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but trust me, Everything I'm about to say, it's going to come from the text. All right, are you ready? Here we go. I want you to write down the word drink. I know that sounds crazy. That's okay. Chastisement. Atonement. Intercession. Death. Serpent. High priest. I know you're thinking that sounds crazy, but that's okay. One more time. First word is drink. Next word is chastisement. Next word is atonement. Next word is intercession. Next word is death. Next word is serpent. Next word is high priest. I think those words is where the answer is found in how to interpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I'm not just finding, I'm not just choosing random words. You're like, these words are going to be, are going to arise from our study of the verses that precede 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Right? And you'll see how this all makes sense. So everybody got the words down? On one side, what are the three words? Able, escape, endure. All right? The other side, drink, chastisement, Atonement, death, serpent, high priest. Sorry, you got you got them down. If you have that down, you're 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 already halfway there. Okay, now we have a verse in first. Now this is basic hermeneutics. All right, remember I love teaching hermeneutics here. Okay, all right. So First Corinthians ten thirteen. We have a verse. When we look at the verse on its surface, it seems to say something that everyone in this church can acknowledge we don't quite experience. So that's a clue that maybe we need to relook at the verse. Does that make sense? That's a basic hermeneutical rule, okay? Now, whenever you have a verse that, may, that appears to be, we may not understand it or it may be difficult, one of the things we always have to do is what? What's one of the, one of the steps that we have to do whenever we have a verse that can be difficult? We have to first zoom out from the verse, and remember the book in which the verse is found. Yes? All right. So a basic, just a basic summary of 1 Corinthians. We spent four years studying 1 Corinthians, so everybody in this church should remember what I'm about to say. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church located in a city. The city was influencing the church more than the church was influencing the city. Paul has to write the letter to try to correct all of the problems in the church. 
And there are, there's so many of them. I mean, for crying out loud, they're getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. They're suing one another. Uh, a son is having relations with his father's wife. They're, I mean, they are divided. They're, they're using spiritual gifts to, to elevate and glorify themselves. The church is an absolute broken mess. Now, that's interesting, right? Because if 1 Corinthians 10.13 is to be understood as, hey guys, just stop sinning because there's no temptation you're getting that you can't resist and God gives you a way to escape. Why would he wait to chapter 10 to say that? He could start the letter with that. Hey guys, stop sinning. But not only does he admit what it, not only does 1 Corinthians 10.13 doesn't appear till chapter 10, after chapter 10, he continues to deal with their sin. That, that, just, that's, that gives me at least a clue that maybe our way of interpreting it has not been right. That, that's at least a clue. Right? Now, that goes from the entire book. Now, after you look at the book, what do you need to then... That's zooming out. Now we need to zoom back in. What do we need to zoom into? The chapter. Oh, this is very good. All right. The chapter is super interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Everybody ready? Now we're going to establish context. So so the the purpose of the book is to correct a church that's continually sinning. So that means it doesn't make sense that the solution is just stop sinning because you don't have to. That that already gives me reason to, to question how we interpret the verse. Now let's look at the chapter and see what we find. Moreover, brethren... I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Stop right here. Immediately, we know 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is about whom? He's going to bring in Israel to this discussion. So whatever we do with 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the context here is Paul bringing in the subject of Israel to the discussion. So what's an obvious hermeneutical question that we would have? What does Israel have to do with 1 Corinthians 10.13? It appears it has a lot to do with it. All right? Now, let's establish what he's saying about Israel. What's the first thing he's saying about Israel in verse 1? Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's he establishing first about Israel? that they had experienced, you can write this down, a supernatural deliverance. Can we all agree that they experienced a supernatural deliverance? Yes. They were in bondage in Egypt. You had plagues, right? You had the Passover. You had the parting of the Red Sea. I think all of that would classify as a supernatural deliverance. That is supernatural deliverance. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they did all... Uh, eat the same spiritual meat. Now, there's a couple of things here in verse 1, 2, and 3. They experienced a supernatural deliverance. Just remember, what, what else, when it comes to a cloud and Moses, they had supernatural, what? Guidance. They were being guided by God through the cloud, through the pillar of fire, through Moses. So they had supernatural deliverance and supernatural guidance. Right? What's the third thing they have here? I just mentioned it in verse 3. They did all eat the same spiritual meat. They did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was whom? Christ. The next thing they had was supernatural provision. Supernatural deliverance. Supernatural guidance. Supernatural provision. Man, they had a lot going for them, right? They had a lot going for them. Now you can kind of see a little parallel to us as Christians, right? Have we had a supernatural deliverance? We've been saved from our sins by Christ. Yeah, that's supernatural because we can't save ourselves. Supernatural guidance, we have the actual infallible word of God. Yes. Supernatural provision, right here. God's word is our what? Our meat, drink, it's our milk. Right? It's our spiritual food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So in some ways, there's a parallel going on here. Right? There's a parallel. Just keep that in mind. But the next verse, 
the tone changes. All of that sounds great, right? Supernatural deliverance, supernatural guidance, supernatural provision. Everybody's like, amen. This is a positive sermon. Until the next verse. What happens in the next verse after all of those wonderful things? How does verse 5 begin in the King James? But, and anytime you see that, what does it do? Negates everything that comes before it, right? Hey, it's wonderful they had all these great things, but what happens? But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, immediately, this is interesting, right? Because we're in a book where people keep sinning, and now in the chapter, it references Israel. And what did Israel keep doing? What, one thing, if you read the Old Testament, what does Israel continue to do over and over and over and over and over and over and over? Sin. Sin and sin and sin and sin. In fact, they, and, and look, they have, they have, in some ways, in some ways, they had some advantages that we can't even comprehend, Right? I mean, they see miracles that we can't even comprehend. The visible presence of God in the Shekinah glory. We can't even comprehend that, right? They see all of this over and over and over. And what do they constantly do? Turn to idolatry. Turn to idolatry over and over and over. And when you read it, there's a. sometimes we can be very judgmental and say, well, I don't know what their problem was until we look in the mirror and like, well, we're, we're kind of the same way. So it's interesting in a chapter that supposedly has a verse that tells everyone they can stop sinning, the way we typically preach it, is a chapter about people who kept sinning. And a book written to a group of people who keep sinning. That, that, that's, that's given me some hermeneutical clues that maybe, maybe we've not handled this so well. All right? so, but note, note what happens in the very next verse. So Israel sinned. They were overthrown in the wilderness. And what, what's the next verse say? Ah, these things are, are, were written and therefore are example. In fact, I'll just read the verse instead of paraphrasing the verse, right? Now, uh, verse 6, now, th- now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And then look at what, verse 11 now, all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So, this is very important. These things are our examples. Then, and verse 11, all these things happened unto them. Everything in verse, from verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, they are the things he's referencing. They are our examples. Now, I will argue you can't interpret verse 13 until we understand these examples. Does that make sense? We have to take these examples apart. And what what are some things we should look for in these examples? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13... No, no, this is what we should look for in First Corinthians. Based off First Corinthians 10, 13, if we're going to look at these examples, we're going to look at what, what's the common temptation, right? What was their way of escape? How did they endure it? Right? The, the, do you see why I'm doing that? If these are the examples, and he's going to flow right from this to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the examples have to give me some kind of clue and how to interpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So what are the three things I told you to write down on your paper? Able? Escape? So what, what ability? What escape? And how did they endure? I think that's a reasonable. Yes. I think that's reasonable. So let's... Go through them. What's the very next verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Very next verse. Well, we're just going to look at an ability, okay? Well, I, I, how we understand that, we're going to have to determine, right? Because our, the way we interpret it in our minds, because it's been so preached and pounded into our head, that I, that I have the ability not to sin, that I can escape it, and by enduring it means I don't do it. That's just been, that's the way it's been preached to us. But I don't think that's the reality we all experience, yes? 
And I, I think that obviously in, in all of the examples we're going to have, I'm going to tell you this, they all sin. That's interesting, yes? So that, that, that maybe give us, maybe that gives us pause on how we understand this. So what's the very first one he wants us to read about? Verse 7, everybody there? Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose to up to play. Now, there's, there's some specific verses that this can reference, but most, most everyone agrees that one of the major points that this is referring to goes back to the book of Exodus. Yes, Exodus. So let's go to Exodus chapter, what, what chapter is that? Exodus chapter 32. All right, Exodus chapter 32. All right, we know this story, do we not? Exodus chapter 32, so let's work through it, okay? Thinking caps on, all right? Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. Now let's stop right here. Now, what's the first thing we need to identify here in this text? Think about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. What's the temptation? So what's the temptation they are experiencing here? Well, they are experiencing, obviously, a temptation of they're worried, anxiety, concern. Moses is gone. And probably in their minds, what do they associate with Moses? Say it. God. Moses, in a sense, is, is his, the presence of God is almost connected to whom? Moses. Moses is gone. Where is God? Think of it this way. It's almost as if Moses served as a visible representation of God's presence. No, God is gone. That visible representation is gone. God is gone. Now, let's not be super critical of of Israel here. Because we've all found ourselves in situations where things seem to be going wrong and we have a tendency to forget that God is around and we start coming up with our own schemes, our own ideas, and our own plans to come up with our own solutions to fix our problem. Yes? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. But we've all been there. Amen? So we can see the temptation here. And so their solution is, Moses is gone, what do we need? Now, maybe another God or maybe a visible manifestation of God in order to calm their anxiety and fears. There are a lot of different ways of interpreting this, okay? So let's, because we want to be fair. They could be just creating a visible manifestation of God. And it's interesting that they create a golden, where have they been? What did Egypt, one of the things Egypt worships? Yeah. They, they, they worship cows. There's, there's actual, bury them in tombs, you know, like almost as deity. So, so, so you can see that they're borrowing from what they, but I mean, they've been in Egypt for over 400 years. You can, can't expect them, you know, to come out with a you know, theology degree. I mean, they're going to they're gonna be a little bit confused. But what they really want is maybe just a visible manifestation of God. Right? But they're doing it in a way that obviously God has forbidden. He told them not to make any image, Right? Okay, so, there's the temptation. Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are, are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, brought them unto Aaron. He received them uh, at their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool that he had made, made it a molten calf. And they said, These be the, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it may be, again... We could read it like they're just turning to a false god, but it could just be that this is now the visible manifestation of the true God, which again is not what God told them to do. They're sinning, all right? And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast for the Lord. And they rose up early on the morning and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat, this is verse 6, and to Drink and rose up to 
play. Where, where is that found? Back in 1 Corinthians. This is the example. Now, let me make it clear. Did they face a temptation? What happened? They sinned. Isn't that interesting that that's the first example we're given about a verse that supposedly tells us that we don't have to? <laughs> From a hermeneutical standpoint, in a hermeneutics class, this would be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've got a problem here. I've got a problem here. Or maybe we don't have a problem, but we'll see. We'll see, all right? So they, they end up to play. Now, so what do we want to see next? We see the temptation. We see how they responded to the temptation. So then what do we want to ask? Well, then how do they escape? How do they endure it? How do they bear it? What occurs? Well, let's go through everything that happens. Everybody ready? What's the first thing that happens in verse, well, we'll just go to verse 7. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down, for thy people, which they have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it, worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, of, uh, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a... Stiff-necked people, now therefore let them alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. So what is God basically saying? I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll start over. That's a serious threat. Now remember, God obviously knew this was going to happen. We don't want to go into some open theism kind of nonsense, okay? He clearly knows what's going to happen. But this, this is a serious situation. God is upset. So they sinned, God is upset, where is the escape? Where is the way to endure it? What's the very next thing that happens in the very next verse? And Moses besought the Lord his God. All right, first thing I want you to write down here is intercession. Intercession. Remember the words I told you to write down? We have intercession here. No, remember we had the three words on the one side and on the other side I gave you a bunch of words. Chastisement, remember? Is, is intercession one of those words? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, intercession is there. So now we have intercession taking place. Now that's interesting, right? Moses is interceding on behalf of the people and what does he say? And the Lord, and Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief, did he bring them up out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of the evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seeds as the stars of heaven, and to, unto this land I have spoken of will I give it unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he sought to do unto his people. Now remember, when it says he repented, it's not the idea that all of a sudden God changed his mind. It's, you, it's speaking of it in a way which we can understand, right? Because it just seems like God is mad. Now, he's not going to do something. Obviously, God is sovereign and already knew what he was going to do, okay? Because you can't have God changing his mind because then that begins to, well, create major theological problems, okay? So, intercession takes place. Now, this is important. What was God going to do? Someone intercedes. Now, oh, there's an escape. Is there not here? Well, there's an escape. What are they escaping? Destruction. Or say it, I love that. The wrath of God. That's good. All right, they're going to escape the wrath. Keep that in mind, all right? And intercession takes place. This is very important. Intercession takes place. All right, I got to keep checking the time here, all right? Oh, we're not going to get very far, but that's okay. We're going to get this set up because then in the next hour, we can just jump in, all right? Now, that's... Verse, uh, that gets us all the way to, where did we stop reading? Verse 14, right? Now, verse 15, Moses turned and went down from the mount and the two tables of his testimony in his hand. We know what he does. He gets upset and does what? He breaks them because what does he find the people doing? Verse 19, 
He came nigh to the camp, and he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. He's upset. Moses is upset. He's mad. He's angry at these people. I go to commune with God, and you people lose your minds. Okay, you can understand why he's upset. Now, the next part is weird. All right, you ready? And he took the calf, which they had made, and burnt it in the fire, ground it to powder, strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. Now, always remember, whenever you're reading a text and something just bizarre jumps out like that, that's weird to me. I mean, does idolatry happen in the rest of the Bible? Can you think of any other situation where the uh, idol is burned down and they drink it? This is the only place. Yet it's the very place that is used as an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what's very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, remember the verses that precede verse, what, 7 in 1 Corinthians 10? It talks about something Israel did prior to them doing this. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. It talks about them drinking. Now it references a situation where now they have to drink. Now this drink is doing what? Well, it's going to, once again, what's the whole point of this drinking? This drinking is a part of what? Appeasing and stopping God's wrath from consuming and destroying all of them. So we have two things that happen here. Intercession and drinking. Just write that down. I know it makes no sense. It will make perfect sense in a and, well, maybe in the next hour, okay? Okay? Everybody, intercession, drink. That's interesting. And again, don't you find it weird that they have to drink it? Like, why is he making them drink it? That just makes, like, there's got to be a reason for this. It's, there's got to be something that's going on here, all right? So we've got the, we've got the intercession, we've got the drinking. What's the next thing that occurs? Verse 20 is the, uh, the uh, drinking. Then Moses confronts Aaron in verses 21 to 24. Remember what's Aaron's excuse? I, I threw in the jewelry and this calf just popped out, right? I just, I just threw it in and boom, there it was. Like, it's really funny the way he, he seems to explain it. It's like, I don't know, I don't know how it popped out. It just comes, it just comes popping out of the fire, right? So he's confronted and then what happens? This next part is really brutal. Starting at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked, unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto them. And he said unto them, this, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out of the gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And how many people die in verse 28? Now, 3,000 is horrible, yes? 3,000 is much better than the destruction of the entire nation. Because remember, God was going to destroy the entire nation. So 3,000. So let's put this down. And and in a way, this is a part of escaping what? God's wrath, all right? So what do we have? What's the first thing that occurs? Intercession. Next, drink. Third, death. All right, this this is bizarre that this is all happening, but I think it will make sense. Now, what's the next thing that occurs? Look at 3230. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. So now this is important. Hey, all of you have sinned, but how many people died? 3,000 died. But everyone is guilty of this sin. So it's interesting. There, there was a specific reason for those people dying, but not everyone dies here. Because something here is appeasing God's wrath from destroying everyone. Intercession, drink, death. And now what's going to occur? And now I will go up unto the Lord, pre-adventure, I shall make an, an atonement for your sin. Now, what, 
When we speak of an atonement, what do we mean by atonement? What, what is an atonement? Let me give you a simple theological definition for atonement, right? Now, some may talk about the word being a covering and those kinds of things, but a simple theological definition, that's the way I have written in my notes, reconciliation between God and man via a sacrifice. Reconciliation is bringing God and man back together, or an atonement is a reconciliation of God and man via a sacrifice. Right now, what's the, what's the relationship between God and Israel at this very moment? Separate, right? Yeah, they're separated. They're not on good terms. Would everyone agree? Now, how are they going to be reconciled together? By an atonement, by a sacrifice. Keep that. That's very important, is it not? That's very important. All right? Then, look at verse 35. Even though an atonement is made, look at what happens in verse 35. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Now, that idea of plagued, there's lots of dispute here in what's going on because the text doesn't explain it. Some people think that it's like some kind of an actual plague comes upon them. Most think that the word plagued here just means he, he brings trials, troubles, and difficulties upon them because of their sin. If we go with that understanding, then what would this be? Look at your list of words. You've got intercession. You've got drink. Chastisement. Very good. We have chastisement. So we have a common temptation. The people sin. But how do they, what do they escape? Think about this way. Their ability to bear this their ability here to escape this is not based off what they do. It's based on what is done for them. Yes? And what is done for them? Go through everything that just happened in Exodus 32. Intercession is made by Moses on behalf of the people. Yes? It's not the people making intercession. Someone is interceding on their behalf. Does everybody see that? Next thing that happens. They're made to drink. Now, they do the drinking, right? They do the drinking, but someone sets up the situation, right? Someone tells them to drink it. So, again, it's someone doing something for them, telling them, you need to drink this. Next. Death. All right, well, that happens to them, okay? That happens to them. Next. Atonement. That's done on behalf of them. And then there is chastisement. All of those things does what? Because what was the original plan? To wipe them all out. There you go. They escape. All right? Now, what, what time is it? Okay. Are you ready for the big reveal? All right. Well, I'm not going to be able to go through everything. Let me, I'm going I'm I'm to set you up for the next hour. You ready? Here we go. Every one of those things... Pictures what Christ has done for you and I in regards to your sin and your temptation. We can go through them quickly. You ready? Well, no, the next hour we'll break them down. Christ does what? Makes intercession for you continually. Every time you sin, who's making intercession on your behalf? Not only is he making intercession, we refer to him as our advocate, right? Because I sin, I deserve what? Wrath, but Christ intercedes to to show the Father that he is my advocate, and well, he has covered me in his imputed righteousness, right? But he makes intercession for me. That's a good thing. I don't know if you know that. That's a good thing, okay? That's a very, very good thing that Christ is praying for me all the time. What's the next thing that occurs? Drink. Oh, now that's interesting. Because I can remember a time where Jesus is in a garden and he says, remove this cup from me. But then he says not, thy will be done. In, implying, okay, I want the cup removed, but the cup's not going to be removed, so I will drink the cup. What does that cup represent in the, in the Bible? It represents God's wrath. Guess what? God drank. My, in a sense, God's wrath 
for my sin. In other words, someone's going to drink God's wrath. Either you or someone on your behalf. In this case, who drank God's wrath? Christ did. We'll look at this in greater detail. You'll see that this, is, I can demonstrate this easily in the New Testament. It's no problem to prove this. Christ drank your wrath. So does that, what does that help you escape from? Helps you escape God's wrath because Christ already, he drank the wrath. Is that good news? That's how I escape it. That's how I can endure it, right? What's the next thing? Death. Well, what did Christ die for? He died. Well, we, we deserve death. He died in our place. He died for our sins, yes? Next. Atonement. Well, how am I made right with God? Perfect sacrifice. So I'm reconciled to the Father through a sacrifice. Well, sounds good. And then next, chastisement. What does the Bible say in regards to chastisement? He chastised those whom he loves. Now, why does he chast? If Christ takes care of all of my sin, why does he bring chastisement? To try to help me move away from that sin and help me learn not to continue to do that sin so that I can endure it and so that I can escape doing it, hopefully, a second time. Christ brings all of that into your life to help you escape it and to help you bear it. That's how we escape and bear it. That's how we endure it. It's not be, uh, some promise that we're never going to sin because even the example given are people who did what? Sin. And that's only the first example. There's three more. And guess what you're going to find in all the, three, the next three examples? They all sin. <laughs> okay. it, that's, that's a hermeneutical clue. All right, so we'll have to stop right there. Now, in the next hour, we'll go, we'll go through all of those quickly. We'll look at how Christ did so, and then we're going to move through all of them, and then we're going to end with five very important points. But we're going to look at each one of these, and I think now you're going to understand how to interpret each example. What do we look for? What happened, and how does Christ accomplish it? All right? It will make perfect sense by the time we're done. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. This is such an important, important verse, an important concept. Help us understand it correctly so that we can maybe help Others who are disillusioned and discouraged thinking the Bible is not true or doesn't work, that maybe they've just not understood it correctly. And help us understand it correctly and apply it correctly to our lives as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.